any need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You tonight for Your mercy and grace. We thank You for the uh, salvation we have in Christ. Lord, we thank You for um, all that You bless us with. We think of these facilities and how we have been so blessed to have this place to worship. And Lord, we try to be good stewards of it. And Lord, we need Your wisdom in that. And Lord, we need Your resources. And so, Lord, we ask that You would bless and help us with those needs. And Lord, we're trusting You for that. Lord, we also uh, tonight thank You for the eternal city of God. We thank You that uh, You are preparing a place where we will be with You forever. And what a glorious place it is. And so, Lord, we, we really can't even comprehend it. But, Lord, as we think through this passage tonight, we pray that You would help us to uh, grasp the majesty of what that is going to be someday. And, Lord, to live in light of that in these days in which we live. There's so much darkness in the world that we live in. And yet, Lord, You have given us the light of the glory of the gospel, and Lord, we thank you that uh, we, because of your gospel, we can shine in this world, and so Lord, we want to do that for your purpose, for your glory, and Lord, help us tonight as we go through this study that you would bless. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are looking again at the eternal city of God tonight, and we got through half of this section last time. I hope to make it down to chapter 22, verse 5 tonight. And then we'll devote the next week on the rest of chapter 22 and finish up this book. I am uh, considering at this point then moving to uh, 1 Corinthians on Sunday evenings and uh, go through that book. Now, we read chapter 21, verse uh, verse 22, down to 22.5 a few minutes ago, but... It's been a couple of weeks. It's been three weeks now since uh, we've uh, been in this. So I want to read it one more time just so you have this clearly in your mind. So let's read it again. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there is no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, 
and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Now, last time we covered most of the first point, the first main point in our outline, which is a look at the city. The New Jerusalem is given in much greater detail in chapter 21, verses 9 through 21. And we looked at that. And even though we only get a small glimpse of it here, what we get here is a description that boggles the mind. And as we're going to see, the limits of human terminology are employed to describe something that really none of us can even imagine. And we broke this down into five parts. We saw, first of all, the spokesman in uh, chapter 21, verse 9. We saw a synopsis in 21, 10, and 11. We saw the superstructure, verses 12 through 14, and the size of the New Jerusalem in 21, verses 15 through 17. Now, tonight, we need to move on to the last sub-point under this main point that we did not get to last time, which is the sublimity. The sublimity. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is for our purposes tonight. And we see that in verses 18 through 21. We see all the sublime, precious materials from which the city is built Look with me at verse 18. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. This is really beyond our comprehension. The idea here is that the gold is so pure, it is transparent. Jasper is, of course, the same diamond-like stone that we saw in verse 11. Not only is the wall of the city as clear as glass, but the entire city is clear as well. This, again, is so that the glory of God may fill it and shine through it. Johnson says the symbolism is not meant to give the impression of wealth and luxury, but to point to the glory and the holiness of God. You know, we always think of Gold as a symbol of wealth or luxury. But in this case, the whole issue is that which puts the glory of God on the greatest display. Go on to verse 19. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And then he goes to list all those twelve stones. Steve Gregg says the twelve gems comprising the foundation call to mind the twelve gems worn upon the breast of the high priest. Though, again, the individual stones are not identical, but it reminds us of that. But as John MacArthur explains, the names of some of those stones have changed through the centuries 
making their identification uncertain. It's hard to identify exactly what these stones are. Now, we won't go into uh, detail for all these 12 stones, but I believe they are intended as an incredibly brilliant and colorful display of the glory of God to shine throughout the city. All these brilliant colors will be uh, reflecting throughout the city. This is going to create a scene of breathtaking beauty. The final descriptive word about the the city's exterior deals with her gates and streets. Look with me at verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The twelve gates are the same ones mentioned in verses 11 and 12. They have the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on them. And remember, these are really what we would call gate towers. But here we're given some additional information that they are all made of one single pearl. Now, that's a large pearl. Dr. Thomas explains that among the ancients, pearls were ranked highest among the precious stones because their beauty derives entirely from nature. And I'd like to see the size of the oyster that made those pearls. But pearls were one of the most valuable items in the Roman world. And John is very clear here that each of the twelve gates is made from a single large pearl. And then he moves on to the streets. Actually, it is in the singular, both here and in chapter 22, verse 2. The word for street there in the Greek is plateia. It literally means broad. You talk about Broadway. We haven't seen anything yet. It is possible that this single street may be a generic term to describe all the streets of the city, or it may be possible that all the streets are so interconnected that they are, in fact, just one street that goes everywhere. As Dr. Thomas puts it, because the street will be continuous, even when it changes direction or joins with avenues coming from other gate towers, it is only one and not many. And yes, the streets of heaven will be streets of gold, but not like we think of gold today. This gold will also be transparent like glass. Well, all this is incomprehensible, but it gets even even better than that. Not only do we get a look at the city, but secondly, John tells us about the light of the city, the light of the city. The rest of this 21st chapter is devoted to the glory of God and the illumination of the eternal city. As if it is not enough just to witness the magnificent city from a distance, 
John's angel guide takes him now inside. And it's interesting and significant what John notices first. Look with me again at verse 22. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. This is Jesus and Jehovah Power and Light Company. The center of the worship of Jehovah throughout the centuries has always been the temple. It was certainly that in the Old Testament. And it had its beginnings with the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then it became permanent in the building of the temple. But even during the millennial kingdom, the temple will be the center of the worship of God. But here, in the eternal state, there will be no need for any temple because the presence and the glory of God will fill the entire city. As John puts it, the glory, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. MacArthur says, Their blazing glory will fill the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no need for anyone to go anywhere to worship God. They will be able to worship in the very presence of God at all times. We won't need churches anymore. We won't need steeples. We won't need stained glass. No religious symbols. Everything that all of those point to will be forever. We will be in the presence of forever. And as Steve Gregg puts it, it is illuminated by the one who declared himself to be the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go on to verse 23. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This, again, emphasizes that the new heaven and the new earth will be radically different from the present one. It will not be dependent upon the rotation of the earth or the light of the sun or the moon. You know, it's interesting that the prophet Isaiah described this very thing. He said in Isaiah 24:23, "The moon will be ashamed and the sun confounded." And the whole idea here is that the glory of God will far outshine the sun and the moon, so it's like they they'll become ashamed in comparison. To the point where they're going to be even ashamed to try to shine in the midst of the glory of God. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20. He said, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your morning will be finished. All of this is in connection with the Holy of Holies, because the Shekinah, the glory of God in the Holy of Holies, would fill the temple and fill the temple with glorious light. 
Otherwise, it was completely dark. But when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, it was flooded with light. And just in the same way, the new Jerusalem will be filled with the glory of the light of the Lord. The light from the glory of God will be bright enough to fill the entire new creation with light. Now, verse 24 has caused a little bit of controversy. Look at verse 24 with me. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. There's been all kinds of debate among scholars concerning where these nations and kings come from. Who are they at this point where he's describing the eternal state? Dr. Thomas, in his commentary, lists ten different possibilities. And so, you know, scholars, they love to just debate everything, and so they've come up with all these ideas. In fact, it also includes the idea that there could be some unredeemed people still floating around out there. This is one of the reasons why some scholars think that we're still describing the millennium here rather than the eternal state. But as I said earlier, it is fairly obvious by the chronology here that this is not referring to the millennium, but to the eternal state. And whatever else we might say about these nations and kings, we must say that they are redeemed people because all those who are unredeemed have already been judged at the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. There are no unredeemed people left at this point. I think I agree with Dr. MacArthur here, who writes, Nations translates ethnos, which can also mean people, and is most frequently translated Gentiles. The idea is not that national identities will be preserved in the eternal state, but rather the opposite. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation, both Jews and Gentiles, will be united together as God's people. I think this is just a generic way of saying that the glorified saints will also add their glory to God's glory. Alford points out that the present tense of feruzen, which is the word for bring, marks this as a habit, as a matter of certainty in the new creation. In other words, they will consistently and constantly bring their glory into it. The glory of the saints of God will also be added to the very glory of the Father and the Son. Now, verse 25 is also interesting. It says, In the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. Now, of course, in any ancient city, the gates would always be closed at night to prevent invaders, marauders, or criminals from entering the city under the cover of darkness. But that's not going to be the case in the eternal state. The gates of the eternal city will never have to be closed for any reason. And there are two reasons for that. 
Number one, because there will not be any night there, as we're told here. Uh, clearly in Scripture, there's not going to be any night. It's always going to be day. And secondly, because there will be no evil. Dr. Thomas puts it in his typical technical way. He says, a future emphatic negation will in no way be shut, draws extra attention to the continued access for the nations and their leaders into the city. It also serves notice of the perfect security of the city, would-be exploiters of the open city, will be non-existent. We'll go on to verse 26. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. One thing is for certain. This is another emphatic negation here. Nothing impure will ever enter this eternal city. Now, even though the way this is worded has led some to conclude that there are still some unsaved people roaming around outside the city that will not be allowed into it, that is not what's being communicated here. Dr. Thomas says to read into these words that lost people will roam about outside the city with an opportunity to eventual, of eventual repentance and entrance into the city, which was taught by one liberal theologian, is completely fallacious, he says. He says the verse is rather intended as a warning to the reader that the only way to enter the city of the future is by becoming a loyal follower of the Lamb right now is to make sure you had your name written in the Lamb's book of life. This is simply another element of our eternal security being referred to here. Nothing defiling can ever enter the eternal city to ruin it. In the same way that the reference to no more tears in verse 4 does not mean that those who enter heaven are going to be crying but indicates that there will never be anything that will ever cause tears again. So this statement is saying that there is the guarantee that nothing will ever, ever defile or pollute the heavenly city. So we have a look at the city. We have the light of the city. And thirdly, we see the life of the city. Moving into chapter 22, we have in the first five verses a description of the inner life of the city. As Johnson puts it, here paradise is regained. What once was forfeited by our forebears in Eden and denied to their succeeding posterity is now fully restored. As in the Old Testament imagery of the age to come, metaphors of water and light abounds. He says in both Testaments, water is frequently associated with the salvation of God and the life-imparting and cleansing ministry of the Holy Spirit. This section that we see describes life from God that streams unceasingly throughout the new worlds. I mean, look with me at verse 1. 
And he, the angel guide, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river here is not filled with literal water. It is the water of life. This is the symbol of eternal life. And you may remember that in chapter 7, verse 17, the 24 elders are promised the water of life. It says there, For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. This river is one of the most prominent features of the eternal city. It recalls the river that flowed through the Garden of Eden, which was divided into four Heads, one of which was the Euphrates. And you can read that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 14. Dr. Thomas says such a river is a metaphor for refreshment during the millennial kingdom in Zechariah 14.8. In Ezekiel 47.9, the river's source is the temple rock and its destination is the Dead Sea which body of water it will convert then to fresh water. And we see that in Ezekiel 47, 9. There are a number of similar metaphors in the Old Testament uh, to this. Thomas says metaphors involving water often in the Old Testament describe future ideal conditions and unlimited access to this life-giving water will assure residents of the new Jerusalem, of an everlasting enjoyment of life. This is incredible symbolism here. And notice that the source of the river is the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is appropriate since God is the source of all light and all life. This river is also crystal clear, just like everything else in the city so that the glory of God can be put on display everywhere. It's even going to be put on display in the water that streams down from the throne. It cascades down from the throne of God in a dazzling, sparkling, never-ending stream. MacArthur says it's pure, unpolluted, unobstructed flow, symbolizes the constant flow of eternal life from God's throne to God's people. Go on to verse 2. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, the translators of the New American Standard Bible show their position of this by including the phrase, in the middle of its streets, as part of the thought of verse 1. This view sees the river flowing down the middle of the streets. Dr. Thomas explains at issue is the syntactical question of whether the words in the middle of the street connect with verse 1 and conclude that sentence or begin the new sentence that continues in verse 2. And the Greek language, as you probably know, does not have any punctuation marks. So sometimes these syntactical decisions have to be made, and it's not always clear which way you should go. So there's some uncertainty here 
about the city's layout. But I agree with Dr. Thomas, who writes, the best analysis pictures a river flowing down the middle of the city's broad street with the trees on each side of the river in the middle of the space between the street and each of the river banks. The word for tree, Zylon, is in the singular, but it probably is being used generically here to refer to a number of trees. Steve Gregg writes, the tree of life lacks the definite article and thus seems to be used collectively of many trees of one kind. Ezekiel's account of the Millennial River has trees of all kinds on both sides of the river. And we see that in Ezekiel 47:12. Of course, the first place that we ever see the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2:9. And when man fell into sin, he lost access to the tree of life, Genesis 3:22. To 24. After Adam and Eve had eaten of another tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died spiritually. They were still alive physically, but they were now dead in their trespasses and sins. And so God barred them from the tree of life because He did not want them to live forever in their fallen state. And God would have to provide a way of dealing with their sin before allowing any access again to the tree of life. Someone once said that the most important history on earth revolves around three trees. The first one is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second one is the tree of life. And the third one is the tree on Golgotha's hill. The first tree took away man's spiritual life. The tree on the hill of Calvary made it possible for spiritual life to be restored. And the tree of life in the New Jerusalem assures that those with spiritual life, that they will live forever with God. But back to Revelation 22, verse 2. It says the trees will produce 12 kinds of fruit, and they will produce fruit every month. Now, notice that the phrase kinds of is in italics. The Greek literally reads 12 fruit. Now, this could be 12 kinds of fruit, or it could be a 12-fold harvest of fruit, implying here abundance of fruit. It probably means both variety and abundance. Dr. Thomas says the seasonal bearing of fruit familiar to this old creation will be a thing of the past and conditions of the new creation will be far different. The month-by-month harvest agrees with the picture of Ezekiel 47.12. And although eating of the fruit is not specifically mentioned here, it is implied that this is what brings immortality just like it was in the Garden of Eden. And notice the last phrase of verse 2, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, this phrase has sparked some controversy. 
it is usually interpreted according to some basic premises. Uh, Those who don't take a futuristic view of this book tend to apply this to the gospel of the current age. But others believe that this fits better in the millennial uh, kingdom age rather than the eternal state. So there's some disagreement there. However, the word for healing there, therapeian, does not necessarily have to refer to healing from sickness or disease. It can refer to maintaining health. The word therapeutic means health-giving. And I believe that is the way it's being used here. The leaves of the tree are all like supernatural vitamins to ensure the general ongoing health of the nations. It implies the perfect source of long-term and eternal immortality. It is another symbol of eternal security, and it guarantees that there will never be any sickness or disease of any kind. And both the leaves of the tree of life and its fruit ensure eternal life in its fullness. And again, the word nations there is the word peoples who inhabit the eternal state. Now, the whole concept of the tree of life was something that was very familiar to the Jews. The book of Proverbs mentions the tree of life a number of times. It is generally understood as a reference to the blessings of eternal life. So that's how this is being used here. The glorious blessings of our eternal life. We'll go on to verse 3. There shall no longer be any curse in the Lamb of God, and the throne of God and the Lamb of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. The curse, of course, was imposed by God in Genesis chapter 3. From that time, the old creation was under the curse. But with the new creation will come the end of the curse. And as we saw in chapter 21, verse 4, the removal of the curse will mean that there will never, ever be any more pain or sorrow or death. The phrase, the throne of God and of the Lamb, is repeated from verse 1. Both the Father and the Son will share in that reign. And because of this, His bondservants shall serve Him. The word for bondservants in the New American Standard is really the word slaves. It's the Greek word douloi. It literally means slaves. Most translators today tend to soften that word because of the negative connotations of the word slave. But that's really what it means. And of course, the teaching of Scripture is that you are either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. And the only question is, who are you going to serve? Those in the eternal state will serve the Lord forever. MacArthur says they will spend all eternity carrying out the infinite variety of tasks that the limitless mind of God can conceive. The tense of the verb is linear in nature. They will keep on continually forever serving Him. And verse 5 makes it clear that this will go on for all eternity. Look at verse 
for they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. This is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus that the pure in heart would see God. Only those who are made perfectly holy in Christ will be able to stand in the very presence of God. Or as MacArthur puts it, being perfectly holy and righteous, they will be able to endure the heavenly level of the blazing, glorious light from God's presence without being consumed, which is something impossible for mortal men. The name placed on the foreheads of those in heaven means that they are God's eternal possession. And we've already seen the concept of the sealing of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And the contrast of that is the mark of the beast. And then there's one final statement, summary statement in verse 5. There shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have any need for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. All this is a repeat of what has already been revealed. But here is the promise of God that His saints will reign forever and ever with Him. That is the fulfillment that the Lord made in chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. We'll rule and reign with Him forever. The tribulation saints were promised that they would get to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's in chapter 20, verse 4 and verse 6. Now, that promise is extended to all the saints in heaven and is extended to last forever. Well, that wraps up this description of the New Jerusalem. Next time, we'll examine the rest of chapter 22 and finish this book. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the glorious picture that we have here. Lord, words really cannot uh, adequately describe it, and yet we know these are inspired words. These are Your words of description for us. And so, Lord, we, we thank You for it. Lord, we look forward to that great day where we will be in Your presence forever. Lord, even though right now it's hard to imagine, someday that will be a reality. Lord, we want to we be about Your work and we want to be about Your business while we're still in this present age. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be doing the work that You've called us to do until that day that we're with You forever. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for you this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.